0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Turing Podcast. I'm Ed Kowstree, Junior Research Data Scientist at the Alan Turing Institute. And I'm speaking to you not from the Alan Turing Institute in London, but from the spare bedroom in my mum's house in Oxfordshire. Well, why is that? That's because we're coming to you from the time of COVID-19. My colleagues in this episode will also be speaking from their respective homes. So bear with us, the audio quality isn't quite up to standard, or up to the standard that we'll be used to going forward, but I think you'll enjoy the episode regardless. You're listening to The Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Hello everyone and welcome to The Turing Podcast. Uh, my name is Ed and I'm here with my co-host Effie. Hello Effie.
1: Hi Ed, how are you doing?
0: I'm very good. Um, I hope you're keeping well during this uh, continued lockdown. We're recording on the yeah. 30th of March uh, 2020. So
1: uh, Yes, I'm keeping well um, and I'm really excited to speak to our guest today. Who do we have?
0: Today we have, we're have we talking to uh, Sylvie Delacroix, a Professor in Law and Ethics at Birmingham Law School, who is also a Turing Fellow and was uh, last year Commissioner on the Public Policy Commission for the Use of Algorithms in the Justice System at the Law Society of England and Wales. Uh, Sylvie, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, uh, Ed. Looking forward to the discussion.
0: <laughs> okay, good to have Great, you. Sir. Um, so I think we're going to kick off today with a bit of a discussion um, relevant to the current ongoing global crisis situation uh, but we're going to talk about some of the uh, data ethics concerns um, around the data collection um, to do with coronavirus um, and things of that nature. Um, I'll, I'll start by asking um, about uh, some of the work that you've done uh, Sylvie So you've worked on something called um, data trusts. Can you give us a little bit of an explanation of what data trusts are, what types of data they concern, and uh, the legal benefits uh, they offer?
2: Thanks. Um, Yeah, so data trusts are one type of data sharing structure. And the idea behind data trust is really to say, it's great that today we have uh, this fantastic top-down regulation, like GDPR, for instance, that gives us rights. Yeah, So we have limited rights to portability, access, and erasure when it comes to personal data. But very few people are capable of exercising those rights. That's one problem. Then there's also the other problem that we're all supposed to consent to things which most of the time we have no idea what we're signing up to. So that's the problem with consent. And then there's a third problem is that this uh legal framework has no space really for groups empowerment and so that trust is really proceeds from this idea saying look it's time we have bottom-up infrastructure that allows groups of people to come together and pool the rights they have over the data so that they can a negotiate better terms and conditions when they access service providers like say amazon and b Negotiate data sharing agreements that reflect their particular aspirations and attitudes to risk. And so they do that, they pull together the rights they have over the data and they task a data trustee, which is key, with a fiduciary responsibility to look after their rights and exercise their rights according to the mm-hmm. terms of the trust of joint. So I've I've said a lot in one go, you yeah, can no, ask me to sure. unpack this what,
0: further. What, um, what kind of data are we talking about here? I mean, obviously, we, we're we always told we live in the age of big data. Um, and there's, all, there's always loads of uh, news stories and articles going around about, you know, what social media giants and tech companies are doing with our data, what governments are doing with our data. um But what what are the kinds of data that we're sort of most worried about or might most benefit from these data trusts?
2: Yeah, it's a good question because actually the data trusts as we've envisaged them. So this research has been done with Neil Lawrence who's also a fellow here in the Turing, a senior AI fellow. And so data trust really designed to tackle personal data, right? Now that doesn't mean that other data is not interesting or without challenges. And so recently, we've actually posted a blog on our Data Trust website that tries to illustrate what types of data sharing structures are appropriate for what kinds of data. So say if you study the bottom of the oceans, um, the data you're collecting doesn't have any rights applying to this data, right? And so when you're collecting the data about say the bottom of the oceans, then if you want to share this data, and you should, um, then probably the best structure that is fit for your purposes is a data commons. So data commons is very different as a structure from a data trust, because data commons can be created uh, well, through various legal mechanisms, including a contract or a foundation, whereas data trust really rely on trust law. And I'm not going to go so, further than that.
0: Right. So I guess for the the other one that wasn't data trust, do you say it's data commons?
2: Um, yeah, data commons.
0: It's um, the idea behind that are not human beings' data.
2: Um, yeah. So data commons um, have been used for all sorts of data. Um, when it's personal data, the problem if you put personal data in the data commons is that you're going to have a challenge respecting the rights of the the people whose data it is, right? So mm-hmm. when you put data in the data commons, um, it has been done before that some people have actually tried to put what was at least personal data, but what, which became anonymized in a data commons. And then the question becomes, is the anonymization such that really this data has stopped being personal? And as you know, that's a complex question because anonymization is often, Uh, what can often be undone to different degrees depending on the techniques used. And so there you have all sorts of problematic questions. As soon as you try and put even anonymized personal data in the data commons, you risk overlooking or not respecting the rights of the people whose data it is. So Mm. that's why we argue...
0: I guess there are some examples like if people have very specific medical conditions, even if their names are anonymized or something, it might be possible mm. to work out who they are from the data.
2: Exactly. So um, there's all sorts of situations where, especially when you put together different kinds of data, the risk is that you can um, basically unlock the, uh, well, quickly find out whose data it is by putting the different data points together. Um, so that's why data trusts, I think, are a much more robust way of, of promoting data sharing while at the same time respecting the rights whose data, uh, the rights of the people whose data it is.
0: Makes sense, yeah. Um, That sort of leads me quite nicely onto the next question which is um, sort of regarding the current crisis of uh, coronavirus spreading around the world. Obviously scientists do want to collect as much information about the spread as possible so they can help advise how to stop it spreading Um, Mm -hmm. but what would be some of the obstacles to collecting and sharing data in this context um, and you know, from a technical point of view, but also with respect to the individual rights and privacy?
2: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'm not a technician, so I'm not going to try and, and say anything uh, intelligent about the technical challenges. <laughs> um, what, what I want to say though is we are at a very interesting time today for many, many reasons. But one of them is that this crisis, this COVID crisis, is actually not just showing the acute lack of, say, uh, ventilators, face masks, etc. What it's also showing is that we crucially need proper, bottom-up data infrastructure, and they should never, we should never be put in a situation like we are today, where most people have to choose between, on one hand, supporting very important, potentially life-saving efforts through data sharing. Everybody wants to do that. Who wouldn't want to support those efforts by sharing data? But at the same time, we face this ugly dilemma because it seems that at the moment, in order to do that, the only solution is to give a, fa- a fairly a, a kind of a blank check, supposedly trusting that the entity collecting this data, in the ca- this case, it'll be, well, in the UK, it'll be the NHS, presumably. Um, you have to trust the entity without having any a mechanism or people to make sure that the safeguards that were agreed when you shared this data are kept in place and that the terms according to which this data should be used are respected and so at the moment you have no infrastructure no intermediary layer between us the people who actually most of us want to support those very important uh, data sharing efforts but we have no way We have no reason to to consider that we can trust the entity towards which this data is going. And so that's where data trust would play an absolutely crucial role. Why? Because they would rely on data trustees as an intermediary between us and this entity, the data collecting entity, and this intermediary would best be thought of as like the new profession for the 21st century. Just like we need doctors and we badly need them today, we also just as crucially need data trustees. And the job of a data trustee is both simple and complex. The job of a data trustee is to actually make sure that the terms governing the, the data sharing arrangement are respected and that the safeguards are kept in place. And so I think, uh, I hope, that in this crisis we're going to learn some important lessons and emerge mm-hmm. from this crisis with hopefully a much better much more sophisticated uh, data infrastructure that is not entirely top-down so that doesn't entirely rely on top-down regulation to control okay. data sharing etc and that also empowers people to 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 actually uh, meaningfully participate to very important efforts like we see today, uh, where we, we, we need this data, presumably, to save lives, to track uh, who has been in contact with confirmed patients who have been confirmed with COVID. At the moment, it's, it's expensive and it's time consuming to do that. We could do it much more easily if we could use the location data collected from smartphones. Mm-hmm. But, and it's a big but, by, by going down that route, we very much risk entrenching an already worrying level of surveillance uh, that that is that is just creeping everywhere. Uh, and, and this, this, this uh, need, this pressing need today to share this data is r- risky in the sense that nobody wants it to set a precedent that would just uh, further extend the level uh, or the extent to which we are being surveilled uh, in this case by the state.
0: Yeah, and it, it seems like if the solutions to these problems are essentially being come up with in the midst of the crisis itself obviously yeah. the the privacy and security concerns are not the you know at the front of people's minds right now whereas if these things were already in place they could be in, in place with you know having taken those things better into
1: account I mean- in many respects, I'd say, um, Sylvie, I don't know whether you would um, agree with this, but in many respects, the current crisis has really caught us in this, at this during a really pivotal moment where we're still mm-hmm. in the middle of uh, building and agreeing on what our data infrastructure looks like. Uh, would you say mm-hmm. that that was correct?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wish, I mean, you know, nobody can dictate the time of those crises, but mm. we, ha- we are in the very early stages of discussing data trust pilots with various partners. Yeah. And we just a little bit, uh, you know, I wish, uh, say, if you were talking to me, uh, and we had been had, we've had, we had had two more years, probably mm-hmm. we'd be in a very different situation. I hope, you know. Um yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, so it feels like um, you mentioned a
1: bottom up um, structure of public data sharing. Um, you, yeah. know, as, uh, you know, as in your capacity, in your profession, what would you say that structure looks like? What, what is it that would be the ideal?
2: So I am uh, personally an advocate of data trust, as opposed mm-hmm. to other solutions like data co-ops, for instance, or right. Well, data commons are not often advocated in this context, but data co-ops are very popular, for instance, in the States. And they differ from data trust mainly because they rely on contract, right? So when you create a data co-op, all you need is to uh, write a contract that says, we members of this data co-op are coming together to pull together, in this case, data for the the purpose of, for instance, improving the financial returns from this data. This could be one option at the moment. Or it could be the one to monitor the quality of, say, health services. And we pull together all data in order to be able to do that. So that gives us a service that we would not be able to obtain if we were to do this on our own. So this idea is collectivization. And the difference between data co-op and data trust is mainly that data co-ops rely on a contract whereas data trusts rely on trust law. And the, without getting into legal details, the main consequence of relying on trust law is that you have a much higher level of safeguards. Among mm-hmm. other things, the burden of proof is reversed. So when things go pear-shaped, it's not for you, the member of a data trust, to demonstrate that, say, the data trustee has acted improperly or without due care, etc. The burden of proof is reversed. So it would be for the data trustee to demonstrate that they have acted with undivided loyalty when they manage your data or your data rights. That's just one example of the safeguards that would be in place in a data trust. And that would not necessarily be there in a data co-op. And the data trust is also overseen by a court, a court, uh, an equity court, which is not the case um, in a data co-op. So it's basically saying, look, we're dealing with extremely sensitive kinds of data here, uh, health data, for instance, where the vulnerabilities at stake are such that I believe contract or contractual frameworks are not quite well equipped to address those vulnerabilities. They're, they are easier to set up, but they come with dangers, whereas data trusts have a much more robust governance framework that would be. Much more apt at addressing the vulnerabilities that come from sharing highly sensitive data like your health data, for instance
0: mm. so uh, imagine for a second that the the u k did have uh, a really good um, data trust set up as a this intermediary with the NHS, and that at time like now with the coronavirus or at other times. They are collecting just lots and lots of uh, records on people's health and how it's changing over time um, I, I guess you know how what would be what would be the the kinds of of data that it would be um, best place to collect so I mean I'm thinking what would be the kinds of data that would be most sensitive normally but with the data trust uh, in place, would still be safe to collect?
2: Well, I mean, the beauty of a data trust is that actually it can be a generalist data trust. So you can say, look, I'm joining data trust X and I'm joining a data trust that is set up so that it knows that I want to share data for, say, research purposes. Mm. But I want to make sure that when I share this data, my family is not at risk that there are certain safeguards put in place, et etc, and so my data trustee will know in advance what my aspirations and attitudes to risk are and so from then on, it could be that literally all my data like say my jogging habits, the data comes from my 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 watch uh the, the data that i Uh, produced by every time I go and see my GP, every time I shop somewhere, etc. Now, this data need not, and I think it would be dangerous to centralize it into a data trust. But what can happen is that the data trustee um, basically manages the rights over this data. So that's hard for people to understand sometimes. But the idea here is that there are different ways of implementing data trust one way is to centralize everything and so some people might want to centralize as much data as possible so pull whatever data is on the servers of say facebook to the extent that you have a right to pull it or the rights the data on the servers of google or whatever and to pull as much data as possible within the legal framework and put it in a central repository now i think that solution is actually unlikely uh, mostly because of the costs and security issues that would come with such a centralized infrastructure. But you can also just go for a decentralized approach where the data trustee is effectively your, your, data, like your data intermediary. And you can, the data trustee might even negotiate that, say, when you go and shop on Amazon, instead of uh, agreeing to the terms and conditions of Amazon, you would log in to, your, to Amazon via your data trust. Just like you know today, there's a Google login yeah, that allows you to access various service providers. You could have a data trust plugin, which sets the terms and conditions according to which your data can or cannot be used. And it would be then an arrangement negotiated between your data trust and Amazon, which let's imagine Amazon is happy to comply with the terms of the trust because say I'm, I'm part of a huge trust. Yeah, it could be that you have millions of people in the trust potentially. And so you have huge negotiating power and you can say to Amazon, look, either you comply with the terms and conditions or, well, we tell people not to shop in Amazon or we can also pull as much data as we can from your service and give it to an emerging competitor. So suddenly you have a very different dynamic in terms of negotiation power, right? between uh, well the big five uh, and Mm. us little individuals it almost sounds
0: similar to uh, like a like a union in a way Um, but instead of labor it's data Um,
2: yeah that's right and of course I I don't I always uh, avoid the uh, analogy to unions mainly because some people have argued that data should be seen as labor when actually I think that's a very slippery slope. So it's a very dangerous analogy for various reasons. But you're right, though, that data unions are a good analogy to the extent that they are also about reversing the power imbalances that today mm. very much dictate the way things are done. We have right. no way of negotiating with Amazon, Facebook or whatever. So it's either you take it or leave it. <laughs> you know, Either you comply to their terms or not. Yeah, And so if we could reverse the direction of consent with the data trust, then we're in a different situation. And that situation has consequences everywhere, whether it's medical data or uh, shopping habits, it's whatever. And the beauty is that for research purposes, it's it's kind of very exciting, I think, for a lot of researchers, because certainly you wouldn't be constrained by, say, uh, having to... to go and look for one data set that has been collected with one particular type of consent and then another data set that has been collected with a particular consent attached to it. Here you could talk to a data trustee and say, look, we've just discovered that mental health is affected by not just jogging habits and typing speed, but also, I don't know, um, you know, stuff we've never thought about. Mm. And they could ask the data trustee, look, could we have access to say, I don't know, the cooking habits of Sylvie <laughs> um, provided this has been recorded for some reason, I don't know why, um, because we've, we've discovered that actually this gives us a very interesting insight in say predicting X or Y. And certainly you, you can have via the data trustee who need not have centralized your data, but who can go and negotiate with wherever that data is sitting Yeah, the servers of, I don't know, maybe, a. A cooking company that has provided me services teaching me to cook say yeah mm-hmm. so the data trustee will be your intermediary so as a researcher you can have uh, a, a key to access to potentially a large number of people right. um so you've so actually got
0: access to data sets that more easily in the sense because you're you're not having to worry about coming up against legal loopholes with every single new type of data you're pulling in. It could be all handled under this data trust framework.
2: Exactly. And you also don't have to decide in advance for your research, which kind of data will be relevant to that research. So when I join a data trust, I just say, I am, I'm keen for my data to be used for research purposes, provided certain safeguards are met. And then it's for my data trustee to go and reflect my aspirations and, and negotiate with researchers whose needs may evolve over time and right. who may become interested in, in data that we never thought was interesting five years ago, you know. And so you have a much more flexible approach to um, the acquisition of consent, but also the negotiation of safeguards, etc.
0: So would there be um, some kind of democratic processes <laughs> know, involved in decision-making within The data trust.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely key, of course. So um, depending on the type of data trust, you can have a data trust that's very much run like a collaborative, say, where every member has to take active involvement in big decisions. So you could have a, a kind of very deliberative, cooperative approach for each decision or at least each decision deemed major enough. But you can also have data trust where people, you know, it's important that there'd be a variety of data trusts and people can switch from one data trust to another as and when their preferences or aspirations change. And so say initially I might think I really want to be involved in every important decision uh, that has to do with data sharing, but I find that quickly actually um, I'd rather join a data trust where there's a team of experts that I highly respect and I deem their judgment to be very trustworthy. And I might say to them, look, I don't have time to be actively involved in every decision. Of course, I want uh, a precise um, account, possibly every month, and I could still be consulted on particularly sensitive decisions, but I want to have more hands-off attitude, say. And so you have room for different types of governance. Because, uh, of course, a lot of people, especially at the moment, still lack data awareness. And so they lack an awareness of the risks they're taking when they go online, etc. And, and, and so that's think- one of the th- Yeah, sorry. So sorry. Sorry. Something- <laughs> Yeah, so um,
1: I was going to ask actually, would it be more about splitting those needs according to consumer, uh, consumers' personal health um, data um, and, and the various different categories that we might need in order to be able to legislate for um, distributing the data to researchers?
2: So so, the, so there, are two, there are several approaches. Some people may want to create purpose-specific trusts, so they may say we're gonna create a data trust, say, to promote uh, better research in mental health. And then they will seek to collect uh, data relevant to that. That's a specific purpose model, which I'm not a fan of for various reasons. One of them is that you then have a problem. uh, So especially the example of mental health, you you potentially, um, so the group of people you'll be interested in will typically be vulnerable already at the start. And the risk is that by encouraging that group to share data of various kinds for say mental health research, you risk entrenching that vulnerability further. And then there's the other argument which says, well, it's how do you define what counts as medical data? These days it's constantly changing. The borders between what is medical data and what is social media data for instance, is very blurry, right? So increasingly the data, that we share, say, by going on social media sites, is used for medical research. And so what counts as medical data is going to be a very open question. So from that perspective, the idea of a general data trust that deals in any kind of data, but that is adaptative to um, the aspirations of their users, and users can vote with their feet, so they can shift from one data trust to another as and when they deem it necessary. is I think more appealing, but there is debate about that. Um, I So of course also I should say that all these data trusts necessarily operate within the constraints of top-down regulation, right? So it's very much right. a matter of course that um, you will want to impose constraints on what data can be shared and for what purposes. So for instance, I don't think it's a great idea for all sorts of data to be used for monetary purposes. And I don't think at the moment, we don't have enough top-down regulation to limit the extent to which people can monetize their personal data. I think it should be limited much further. But so I'm not a legislator. And so I'm hoping that data trust might contribute to raising awareness, not just among the population, but also raising awareness of the risks inherent in certain types of uses of data and basically not only calling for better rights, but also potentially calling for more responsible um, restrictions on what uses uh, uh, can be made um, of personal, uh, from personal data and particularly whether or not personal data can be monetized and in what context. And I think that, that question has not been tackled appropriately yet by our top-down regulators. So you're right that there's always a risk that uh, these data trusts could be used for bad purposes, right? You could imagine a data trust that's created uh, to maximize financial returns for their users, right? And you could then have a race to the bottom where uh, without top-down regulation, nothing would stop um, data trusts competing with each other to offer the greatest financial returns are possible and imaginable, with more and more exploitative, exploitative terms imposed on those um, who joined the trust. And I think that would be a terrible scenario, but it's a scenario that I hope regulators will wake up to and prevent by basically very strictly and clearly delineating what is deemed an acceptable use of personal data and when data just can't be monetized, you know, okay. whether there's content or not. Yeah. Um, so thinking, just taking uh, that's, I mean, uh,
1: uh, thinking about this in the context of uh, implementing practices that are going to be useful in the pandemic. How close are we to creating a data trust model, and how how quickly do you think we might be able to implement something like that to support the pandemic efforts?
2: Um. Okay, so, so an interesting question because, of course, these last days I have had various uh, calls going my way saying could we create in a hurry a data trust um, to facilitate or empower groups of people to share their data with a better framework in the sense that they would have an intermediary to, to kind of negotiate the sharing of this data and the safeguards. Um it's very tempting to, to run and to say, yes, let's go with it, given what's at stake. Um, I have Can I yet just to interrupt briefly
0: mind. and ask, would, would that be as an intermediary? Is this in the UK and would it be an intermediary between people and the NHS? Is that what you're being asked to but, think of?
2: So it's, I'm not going to go into specifics, but basically um, at the moment, my worry is that they are still fairly important challenges for this data trust to be genuinely what we mean them to be and one of the challenges the biggest challenge is to make sure that when someone joins a data trust there is more than consent there is active um active you know um, understanding understanding and ownership like of to, to really um, make make the terms of the trust they own to to really feel that they are mm. represented Not by something the worth doing in a rush exactly and and for me that's that's one of the biggest hurdles is to make sure that we we do genuinely a lot better than today's very flimsy and increasingly meaningless consent that is the, the cornerstone of the GDPR yeah a lot of people are frustrated by the fact that we Keep being bombarded with windows asking us whether we consent to this, that, or that. It's not empowering us, and many people feel that this whole consent mechanism is little more than make believe. Often, and yeah. so if we want to do better than that, and we have to do better than that, then we'd have to find a way of creating that a trust that are proven to genuinely represent and and uh, give. Um, give active agency if you want to the people who join this trust. And that's not an easy thing to do. And I worry, I don't want to do this uh, at such speed that it would compromise that. So that's my main uh, concern okay
1: I mean I think that's a very valid concern of course uh, our response and this is a crisis and of course our responses in a crisis are very different Um, but making sure that we are maintaining best uh, best practice is obviously going to be um, increasingly more crucial as time goes on. Um, are you are you are you now anticipating, as a direct result of the COVID nineteen pandemic, that uh, we now have a greater focus on data sharing practices, um, or is is it to your mind uh, a really just the next step in an ongoing conversation um, and development across the field?
2: I hope I hope that this crisis proves to be a step a step change in terms of how we as a society think of data sharing practices how we support them both from the bottom and from the top down and and I think it's time for us to wake up it's partly our fault you know philosophers and lawyers I think have been for too long very uh, much aloof and um, not involved nearly enough in the fast developments that have been associated with data-dependent technologies, and so the fact that we are only talking today about these bottom-up data sharing structures shows how important it is that uh, it's not just—I mean—that it, it doesn't remain a technical subject that is only of interest to engineers and data scientists. Because here we do need the expertise of social scientists, philosophers, etc., to uh, basically pull together what is effectively uh, a new, a new inf- type of infrastructure that is crucially missing and also potentially a new type of profession. That's, that's asking for a lot, you're going to say, especially <laughs> in a short time frame. Uh, but I do believe that it's possible to move on the infrastructure front pretty speedily.
1: And what does that new profession, I mean, from your perspective, what what would that new profession be? And then how would that take shape exactly? I don't know if I'm sort of laboring the point a little bit too much. But what would what would your recommendation around that be?
2: So as a new profession, the argument is pretty simple. It's to say, well, just like we need doctors and lawyers. And when we go to a doctor and a lawyer, we say they have a particular, very special responsibility towards us. So the, the way of being judged, if things go wrong, is very different from, say, the way my hairdresser would be judged if things go wrong. Why? Because <laughs> the vulnerability that is at stake when I go and see my doctor. And for instance, my doctor tells me that I'm diagnosed with cancer. Suddenly, my my what's at stake is my desire to not become just the person who has cancer. Right. I, I want yeah. to remain sylvie. And yeah. so... In the same way, I think when we share data online, the the extent to which we can remain uh, the author of who we project ourselves to be, so who we want to become, is can be compromised. Because as we know, the, the more extensive, the more extensively you share data about yourself, the more you can Uh, allow increasingly sophisticated profiles to be built that anticipate your every move and every desire. And these anticipatory techniques basically can compromise the extent to which you remain true to change, uh, free to change and to become uh, the person you wish to become, basically. And so that's something that's not easily explained in just a few minutes, but I hope I I can at least uh, articulate what I deem to be a very Particular type of vulnerability, and so what I call a sense of self vulnerability. And the reason I talk about this vulnerability is because it's the kind of key argument to justify the need for this new profession. Is to say actually the vulnerability that we have when we go and see a doctor or when we go and see say a criminal lawyer is no different from the vulnerability we have when we share data online. And as such, we should impose. Uh, a particular type of responsibility on all those who have responsibility for deciding how personal data will be shared and for what purposes. And that's where I say data trustees come in. They would be the, the next profession in that they would be uh, representing us and having our best at, at at heart, just like a doctor would. And not, uh, so just like a doctor might tell me, look, Sylvie, I know you want to stop taking these drugs, but it's just not in your interest. And I'm going to stand in your way and I'm going to say you have to continue with this treatment. To some extent, um, a data trustee might be placed in a situation where they say, look, I know you want to, say, for instance, uh, maximize the extent to which you might get financial returns from this, this and this, but it's just not a good idea. Uh, So sometimes a data trustee will have a, a role that goes beyond just implementing your your wishes and preferences. And they may have a role that says, look, um, actually, I have to tell you, this is not a good idea. Now, of course, they can't, at the end of the day, they can't force you. So just like I can go and see a different doctor, I can switch to a different trust, right, and go and see a different data trustee. But I think it's really important um, to to see this, this data trustee as not just a mere service provider with no particular responsibility just like say um, when we you know um, let's say an insurance broker or something like that. I mean uh, right. unfortunately it's hard to say that insurance brokers are held to professional standards even that that would be a <laughs> subject to debate. At least I don't think they live up to that professional standard most of the time whereas um, Ooh, controversial. I hope <laughs> I hope that that uh, trustees will, will be held up to those professional standards. And that has consequences also in terms of how you um, oversee those data trusts. And, you know, at some point you're going to need um, uh, standards of conduct. and um, Some group, some kind of authority to, mon- to kind of evolve in best practice in a way that is very nimble and potentially yeah. more nimble than uh, the national legislator. Okay, well, I mean it feels
1: like a, a good time to then ask, um, thinking about the existing regulatory framework in the UK, where would you say, um, the, uh, if we were to be able to um, come up with a basic data trust on the understanding that it needs to be developed further, um, where would you say um, that would fit in the, cur- in the uh, context of the current framework?
2: Where would that fit? I'm not sure I, I get the question. Uh, well, we,
1: we we have an ex, we have existing uh, regulatory bodies in the UK. Um, they are yes. responsible for managing uh, media. Um, and the, some the, there is some uh, data. Well, there are, there are some rules and regulations around data sharing in each of our um, regulatory bodies, but a data trust, from what you've been saying, sounds like a very different model. So if we were able to create something that we could use in response to the current pandemic, where would that sit?
2: Well, a data trust would not be a regulatory body, just in case I haven't been clear. So data trust first, there should never be one data trust. There should be a plurality mm-hmm. of data trusts, allowing people to choose... An approach to data governance that best suits their needs and aspirations. And then a data trust is really that's why we call them bottom-up data trust. It's Mm. it's something that emerges from uh, the ground up and that can be regulated from the top down with all sorts of regulatory interventions, but it's not per se a data trust is not a regulator, right? It's it's a structure, that's why I call it infrastructure. It's a It's a way of building an intermediate um, layer between us, uh, the data subjects, and them, the data controllers. So regulators have a job in regulating the data controllers and and the uses that can be made from our data. But the data trust would effectively be um, just actually a good example is um, land societies that were created in the 19th century. No, they were not trusts. But land societies were created in order to give more people the the right to vote. So here, I don't know if you're aware of that, but in the UK at the late 19th century, the right to vote was conditional upon you having uh, freehold ownership of a piece of land. And so in order to, to have more people having the right to vote, what people did was to pull together money to acquire a piece of land, which they then cut into little pieces. And so as a result, you had, you know, a dozen people having the right to vote. But the data trust is a bit like that. The idea here is that you pool data rights in order for a group of people to suddenly acquire voice when it comes to data governance choices. And so that doesn't preclude in any way the role or need of top-down regulation, but it's really there to say at the moment, most of our important choices when it comes to data-reliant futures, are made by a tiny number of people. And it's time we change that. And it's time we allow uh, an increasing number of people from the top down, from the bottom up, to have a say in how their personal data should or should not be used within the constraints of the law. So that's the idea behind Data Trust.
1: Fantastic. Um, well, Sylvie, I, I feel it's been a fantastic conversation. Before you go, um, you know, where can people find your work? Um, are you available online? Are you on social media?
2: Yes, uh, we've just created these new web pages called um, HTTPS, uh, uh, well, Datatrust.uk. So okay. DA, well, I'm sure you can. We'll, we'll really. include a link in the episode description. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> great. Uh so that's that's a really good uh starting point with all the resources uh relevant to that I trust put there.
1: Okay. And, and of course
2: this work has been done with Neil Lawrence and we both um both on Twitter accounts are on those
1: web pages. Fantastic. Um, we'll provide a link to um, to Sylvie and Neil, um, and the Data Trust web page. Um, and I guess one last question for you, Sylvie: um, Do you have any wise words for um, you know for the professionals who are currently living through the, the crisis and how they might be able to take steps to ensure that, that they are ready? To, uh, they are ready to step into the roles that are created off the back of the current pandemic. For example, you talk about a new type of professional how can people um, you know sort of enter into that part of uh, the profession
2: that's a great question it's one that I've been discussing with uh, a variety of people because I'm struck by the fact that at the moment certainly law schools are nowhere near preparing future lawyers uh, to have some understanding of the challenges inherent in data science and in this kind of environment and so we really need to redouble our efforts here and change the way we educate lawyers, among yeah. others, it's not just lawyers, uh, to create a group of people who have genuinely interdisciplinary understanding of the challenges inherent in data science yeah. and have a passion to, to basically empower better research and also protect the rights of people, not just individuals, but groups of
1: people. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, Sylvie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a fantastic chat. Yeah, thanks very much. It was really, really interesting to hear your perspective as, um, as an ethicist and, and some of the recommendations, and I, I can't wait to um, you know see it all come together eventually. I think it's one positive to come out <laughs> <Yeah>. of this, <laughs> this crisis. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, thank you, and uh, a pleasure.
0: To learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team if you have any questions or suggestions email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jammin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jamminsun.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstree, Tarek Allam Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute.